Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has five and a half years of law enforcement analysis experience. He started as a community safety and security analyst with Syracuse University and is now an NYPD analyst in the Gun Crime Intelligence Center. He's an environmental scientist turned advocate turned analyst. Please welcome Alexander Lynch. Alexander, how are we doing? I'm doing great, Jason. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. I always uh, think NYPD, you guys are going to be too busy to talk to me, and <laughs> I, but I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Absolutely. All right. So how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? So as you mentioned, I actually started initially in environmental science, didn't really think I would end up being a, a law enforcement analyst. But while I was studying at Syracuse University for my undergrad, I ended up spending summer 2014 in Syracuse. I was interviewing for a local nonprofit. And while I was there, I kind of got to see uh, an unfortunate side to crime around the university. I lived in the university neighborhood, which during its peak has about 10,000 students living in the neighborhood. The neighborhood is comprised uh, 95% students. So while I was living there that summer, uh, somebody broke into the apartment below mine kicked in the door in the middle of the night. Every morning I would come out to a fresh set of handprints on my car windows where someone was looking in for something to steal. My next door neighbor had his car broken into. His friend was sleeping in bed and somebody climbed in through his window and then ended up stealing his bike to get away. So it was just kind of being exposed to all of these incidents that I personally experienced and many of my friends getting robbed, getting their apartments broken into, uh, cars broken into, cars stolen. So I, I was sitting down with my advisor one night, the beginning of senior year. We spent about two hours uh, strategizing about some sort of an environmental science project I would want to do for my, uh, my senior project. And we came up with a solid plan. And then at the end of the meeting, we just started randomly talking about off-campus crime, crime around the university, and the university's response to crime. And after all the time that we spent planning this whole environmental project, he said, Alex, your passion is with crime. That's really <laughs> where you should focus. So one year left of college, I decided to completely pivot what I was doing. I started doing research into crime and really got into uh, crime analysis. I Ended up, uh, after my own experiences and hearing from other people who were living off campus about crime and the issues that they faced, I decided to do a research project that kind of really measured three main things. The first being how students felt about their safety on campus versus off campus, what crime really looked like around Syracuse University, and what innovative technologies were being used elsewhere to reduce crime. So in my research, I found that about 80% of students said that they felt safe on campus at night, and about 80% of students said that they felt unsafe off campus at night, which is hmm. staggering. It's pretty much a mirror image, and 80% of students said they feel unsafe in the neighborhood that they live in. So to me, that was a very clear indicator that not enough was being done for myself and my fellow students. So in addition to that, I did research on the uh, crime trends around the university, kind of long-term analysis on the, the crime that was being faced in the neighborhood. It was primarily uh, property crime, very low violent crime, but it was happening. We were experiencing robberies and very rarely there would be a shooting or a shots fired incident, but um, we were not immune to that. So uh, my research found that the crime around SU was higher than similar universities and urban settings uh, throughout the rest of the United States. And then the third piece of my research kind of focused on specifically how highly visible CCTV cameras or security cameras played a part in reducing crime in cities around the country and around the world. And I found that essentially CCTV cameras that are highly visible had a higher reduction on property crime than on violent crime. And I knew that the city of Syracuse had already begun deploying these cameras elsewhere in the city. However, they were deploying them in high violence areas and high priority areas, not necessarily in the student area. So 
I decided to develop a proposal backed by all my research and the data that I had gathered, supported by students to install these highly visible CCTV cameras throughout the university neighborhood. I met with different business associations, student associations, landlords, business owners, neighborhood associations, local nonprofits, pretty much anyone who would listen and kind of educated them on like the true picture of crime in the neighborhood that we were living in. And along the way, I started collecting letters of support from different people, just kind of pledging their mostly moral support, but also some people promise financial contributions in the future. So I was gathering all of this. And the entire time I didn't tell the university what I was doing, I kind of wanted to wait until I had the project at a place that had so much support and so much momentum behind it that they just couldn't turn it down. And thankfully for me, one night, completely by chance, I ended up getting a an invitation to the chancellor's house for a dinner. So I worked with my advisor and other professors and kind of said like, this is the moment that I'm going to pitch this project <laughs> to the chancellor. Thankfully, one of my professors had reached out to the chancellor and his wife at the time, told them, hey, my student Alex is coming to a dinner at your house tonight. He's going to pitch this project to you. So I got to the dinner. I talked to the chancellor's wife first. Uh, she told me that the chancellor wouldn't even let her walk her dog outside after nine because they, they were obviously aware of some of the crime in the neighborhood. And that was one of the concerns that kind of hit home for them. And they lived in the same neighborhood that I lived in, actually just across the street from me at the time. And then I had the uh, pleasure of pitching the project to the chancellor himself. I kind of laid out everything I just told you about the research that I did on uh, students' opinions of safety, the crime that we were facing, and the solution that I had come up with that was backed by nearly everyone in the community. And then he told me to uh, write him a letter and basically say, here is everything that I just told you. Uh, here's my proposal to fix it. And then what he didn't say to include, what I did include was essentially part two. In order to fully implement this, you should hire me to do it. So... <laughs> <laughs> bold play, move, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So pretty bold move, but I had some incredible advisors at the time that really pushed me. Like, if I'm going to go for it, you got to go for everything. Mm -hmm. uh, go big or go home, essentially. So I sent the chancellor a memo the next day, kind of highlighting everything and uh, my proposal to be hired by the university. I spent a decent number of months negotiating with his office, but uh, ultimately I was hired by the university, position funded by the chancellor's office to work for the Syracuse University Department of Public Safety, with the number one goal being implementing this camera project. So, nice. yeah. So a couple yeah. of follow-up questions to that. This was off campus. So technically, this is the city of Syracuse responsibility, correct? Yes. And had they, the city of Syracuse, had a CCTV system prior to this? So they had a CCTV system that kind of focused on other areas of the city, but nothing that really came close to the student neighborhood. Because like I said, our, our violence wasn't very high, thankfully, in the student neighborhood. Um, but we had high property crime, a lot of theft, a lot of burglaries, a lot of stolen cars. So their primary focus, I believe, with like most of the grant funding that they had got up until that point was in the high violence areas. So I kind of wanted to add on to the existing platform that they had in the city and just expand it into the university neighborhood. Hmm. I, and I'm actually glad that you were able to get this out and set up without a major incident happening, right? Because yeah. usually these things happen in response of a major tragedy. As you said, they're they're focusing on the violent crime and the property crime they they don't necessarily focus on from time to time. And plus it's, it's students, right? These aren't people that probably are voting in that city. They're coming in, staying there nine months out of the year and then mm -hmm. going home. And they're probably, they're voting from outside Syracuse, right? So it's not like you have somebody who's going to be impacting elected officials. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Because of that. So yeah. And it, oh. it, the, although the neighborhood is 
obviously belongs to the city of Syracuse and is the responsibility of the Syracuse Police Department. Ultimately, the university for many years had kind of different partnerships and different initiatives with the Syracuse Police Department, where they partnered up with Syracuse Police and the university's Department of Public Safety to have officers from both agencies kind of patrolling the off-campus neighborhood. Because again, 95% of the population of the neighborhood was students and the neighborhood was immediately adjacent to the university. Um, So the university in what they had done previously, it really appeared that they kind of knew that they had some sort of a responsibility to protect the residents that were living there, considering that it was their university population. Now, did the university have access to the cameras? So once everything was up and running, the university does not have direct access to the cameras. However, the cameras are like all cameras in the city of Syracuse. They all go back to the Syracuse Police Department and the actually the Onondaga Crime Analysis Center, which is a regional crime analysis center in the area. And now the Department of Public Safety does have an analyst that sits at the crime analysis center. So um, it's been some years since uh, I've been there, I'm a little removed now, but I would imagine mm-hmm. now that with all the infrastructure and everything that's set up, that they would have access when needed. And the goal from the start was that the cameras would be integrated into the existing city police department's system, just kind of added onto their platform, and that as needed for investigations, anything that touched the university that the Department of Public Safety had jurisdiction over, they would be able to access the cameras. But again, the primary investigating agency for anything that happens off campus would still be the city police department. Okay. And you have uh, probably several success stories here, but you wanted to talk about one in particular, right? Yes. So this one kind of happened before the camera project fully went out. So I guess a success story story that I had when I was uh, working as an analyst for the Department of Public Safety. We had an incident where a member of our community had reported that a rideshare driver had attempted to sexually assault her. Uh, One of our number one priorities, obviously, was to identify the suspect immediately as quickly as possible and just kind of showing the importance of what an analyst can do and how technology can serve you. Syracuse University has a camera system existing separate from the off-campus system with about 1,300 CCTV cameras covering nearly all of the university. So based on the account from this student, we were actually able to identify where she was picked up by the rideshare driver, where he brought her off campus, and where specifically the incident occurred. And then I was able to use our camera system to create a full timeline of the incident, identify the vehicle that was being used by the suspect. And we put out wanted flyers and the the typical investigative leads to our officers to be on the lookout. However, just a few days later, myself and one of the detectives I work with, we were out in the city for something unrelated. And all of a sudden, this suspect drives right by us in the same exact vehicle that he was using uh, the night of the incident. The detective I was with, myself, and another officer ended up stopping the vehicle. We were able to identify the suspect, get his license, and kind of link him back to the crimes. And then ultimately, the suspect ended up being responsible for one or two other attempted sexual assault incidents, uh, similar scenarios in the city. But ultimately, the work that I was able to do for that helped identify him and get him put in jail. Nice. So with the identification of the vehicle, were you able to get a license plate or you were just able to get a pretty good description of the vehicle? So unfortunately, we were not able to get a license plate. However, the vehicle had very distinct uh, markings, actually red pinstripes on the side of it. (laughs) And the vehicle itself was relatively distinct. So we were able to identify the unique vehicle and its markings. And we were able to push that information out immediately to our officers. The suspect didn't return back to the university area immediately to be found by one of our officers. But again, when we were in another part of the city, we saw him drive by us and he was actually (laughs) working for the same rideshare app at that time, giving a ride to a customer when he was pulled over. Good deal. 
I guess, it, it, do you have any advice for analysts if they're part of a similar project where they're trying to get more CCTVs put up in a neighborhood? Do you have any either lessons learned or advice that you want to share? For me, I think the biggest success was working with the public and working with all of the players and stakeholders from the beginning. A lot of times I feel that some agencies kind of want to expand and put cameras in a certain area without necessarily the buy-in from the community. For me, I pitched this to student organizations. I, I actually included in the research I was doing how students would feel about having these CCTV cameras in the neighborhood. And an overwhelming majority of students said that they support the cameras being in the neighborhood and they feel that would help enhance the safety. So my advice would be to get buy-in from the community and ensure that everyone is on board for me, a major piece of this project, I ultimately ended up raising over $120,000 to fully fund the project. A large portion of the money came from the landlords that own property in the neighborhood. One landlord in particular gave $40,000 to support this initiative. Wow. And initially, when I first met with him, he, he kind of had an idea of what crime was like. He heard stories about his tenants having their apartments broken into, but when I showed him the crime maps for the neighborhood, he was absolutely blown away by the true extent of the crime that was occurring. And even for me, I guess my wake up call when I started working in law enforcement was just as an ordinary citizen, someone not working in law enforcement, when you think of crime, you kind of think of those serious incidents that hit the news that don't exactly occur in your neighborhood or whatever the notable stories are, or maybe you hear about cars being broken into or teenagers going through stealing people's change in their car or occasionally someone's house being broken into, but you don't really hear about the vast majority of crime. And for me, my wake up call was shortly after becoming an analyst and being aware of the true extent of crime. I mean, think if you're if a house is broken into several blocks from you, it's not mostly not going to make the news. You're probably never going to hear about it unless you know the person. There's so much happening that the ordinary citizen just has no clue is even happening. Yeah. Interesting. Well, what a great start to your analyst career. Uh, good job even raising the funds and just a great problem-oriented policing project, pop project that you took on and developed yourself with, of course, you. the help of other folks, but you uh, uh, spearheaded it. So you definitely deserve some kudos. Thank you. Um, Thank you. So then this brings us, you leave Syracuse here and go straight into NYPD as an analyst. So let's talk about that transition. Yeah. So actually, when I was finishing up the project in Syracuse, I had already gotten the city council's approval on the project. The police department was in, essentially the contracts were signed. And once I knew everything was good to go, I started looking for analyst positions. And I saw that the NYPD uh, actually was in the process of creating a new crime analysis program and launching it. And they were looking to hire about 100 crime analysts. And I figured, what better place to work than the <laughs> New York City Police Department? Yes. So... I applied to NYPD as I was finishing up the project in Syracuse. I ultimately was hired as a crime analyst, and I was embedded in a precinct crime analysis unit in Brooklyn. Just real quick there, the hiring process. What do, what do you remember about the hiring process? Maybe what was something that you were particularly uneasy about as you went through that whole process? So I guess since the NYPD crime analysis program was brand new, it kind of seemed like everything was being developed day by day. So <laughs> pretty much once I got an interview and once I got a job offer, I knew I was going to be a crime analyst for NYPD, oh, but okay. I had no clue, no clue what that was going to entail. <laughs> um, even during our training process, since it, it was brand new to the police department, they had very few analysts before that, but never had uh, crime analysts in every single precinct, every patrol borough and specialized units. They never really had a citywide crime analysis apparatus, essentially. So it, it was brand new to everyone. Starting out, a, a lot of people struggled because you got to a precinct and it was like, okay, now you're going to do analysis. And so many people got into units that weren't used to doing crime analysis. Some were more data entry. It, it kind of looked different for everyone. So for me, it was just kind of the unknown. Like I, I would tell my family and friends, oh, I'm going to work for NYPD. And like, oh, what are you going to be doing? Where are you going to be working? 
I had no idea. <laughs> um, but ultimately, the precinct that I ended up working in, I had incredible support. The sergeant that I had at the time, uh, actually sergeants that I had at the time, were both incredible resources. The police officers that I worked with in my unit were also incredible. I got to NYPD not necessarily having the strongest Excel skills. When I got to the precinct in Brooklyn, the sergeant that I had worked with was absolutely incredible with Excel. I was a little resistant at first because we had software that could generate reports for us, but I quickly learned that Excel is incredibly valuable for analysts, (laughs) whether you are in a large police department or a small police department, having some like good core understanding of even the basics of Excel will dramatically increase your analytical capabilities, streamline workflows, and improve efficiency. We, we talked a little bit about this yesterday during the prep call, and you mm-hmm. mentioned that most of the computers programs that you work on there are customized and built in-house. So it's not as if you're dealing with many vendors and dealing with their off-the-shelf products, but you're dealing with in-house capabilities, which certainly has its pros and cons. But one of the pros that you have is that you have a way of searching multiple databases all at once without having to go in and log into 15, 20, 30 systems. You basically have a whole gamut at your fingertips that you can just quickly search people, places, and events. Yes. So within the NYPD, we obviously have proprietary software. There's software that is publicly known, but we have certain systems that are able to aggregate our data and bring together information from 15 different systems all in one place. You can do a simple keyword search and find where names or addresses or phone numbers have popped up in different records that the department has, different incidents, different incident types. So for us, it's incredible to have this software and this ability to bring all of this information together in one place. It makes the job of an analyst that much easier. I guess one of my biggest surprises in law enforcement, I've had the luxury to travel to many different police departments, uh, meet analysts from all over the country and talk to analysts from very small police departments and other large police departments. And the biggest surprise to me was that these other agencies have all of this important information and really intelligence just sitting in case folders or databases or systems that could solve so many crimes, but it remains relatively untouched, just kind of waiting to be found in this disconnected system. And Mm -hmm. for me at NYPD, we have systems that bring all that information together. But even for analysts working in other police departments, I think this is a big gap that Uh, crime analysts and law enforcement analysts overall can help fill is connecting the dots between the information that resides in different systems and kind of bringing all of that together to help develop actionable intelligence and create really informative, holistic products for investigators. Yeah, I remember back when I was an analyst, I say that as if it was a long time ago, really wasn't that (laughs) long ago. But, you know, there was not only different systems that I had access to, but they were on different computers. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't even get it on. I couldn't even get access to it on my own machine. I had to get up and walk to another part of the building to access the data. Of course, it had its own username and password and the passwords always changed every 60 or 90 days or whatever it is. And there were certain format and everything else. And you had to keep it all straight. And it was a little maddening, but certainly understand the the need need for security. But in terms of being an analyst and trying to do your work and trying to keep all this stuff straight, it was was a little nerve wracking. Yeah, absolutely. And (laughs) you have all the different passwords different computers that are needed. And honestly, I I see why that has been such a barrier for so many agencies uh, to really progress. But once you have systems or even have an analyst with access to all of the systems, whether or not they're all connected, but an analyst or an analytical unit that has access to all those systems to be able to query everything and pull all the relevant information together that a detective or investigator would need to solve their cases, I, I think that's absolutely huge. So their CCTV camera system, it's Mm -hmm. 1200 plus? In 
Syracuse, the CCTV system is, I think, now 1,300 plus. The university oh, okay. system's 1,300 plus. The Syracuse Police Department wow. probably has about 200 cameras. Wow. And then what, what does New York have? Do you even know? Uh, I've read articles that say 50,000 plus. Wow. I'm not sure if anyone really knows. Wow, wow, wow. But huh. outside of the recording, definitely 50,000 plus. <laughs> Do you, and I don't know if this, is, if this is an Intel question, you just say so, but how far back do you guys keep? So it depends. I know in Syracuse, they kept about at least two weeks. I'm not completely sure about NYPD. Man, I can't believe yeah. Syracuse has that many cameras. I'm a, I'm out of the game a little bit. That seems, wow, that is a ton of cameras. Yeah. And I had no so, idea. I obviously would have totally underestimated the count of yeah. NYPD cameras. So I think that Syracuse University has about four square miles. That's university property. And they have about twelve to 1,300 cameras that cover those four square miles. And the whole city is, I believe, 26 square miles. And they have, outside of the university, they have about, let's say, 250 cameras to get a good estimate. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely incredible. The university has invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into their camera security system. And when I worked for the university's Department of Public Safety, one of my primary roles was supporting investigations utilizing the CCTV system. And there are cases that I actually won an award from Syracuse University for my use of the CCTV system in solving crimes. The picture I, I will send you of me is me holding the award. <laughs> oh, well this. played. Well played. So we actually had an incident one night. I It was a weekend. I received a call from my boss. He was like, Alex, we need you to come in and we have a missing student. I said, okay, I'll come in. So I go in and essentially we had a student, let's say it's five o'clock at night on Saturday night. This student was missing or last seen the prior night, maybe four o'clock in the morning. So we had a little bit of information to go on where the student was last seen. The student was last seen getting onto a bus with a guy. This was a female student that was missing. She gets onto the bus with a male uh, who we also presume to be a student. And the student's friends had been trying to contact her all day long and they couldn't hear back from her. So I come in myself, some of the investigators and dispatchers. Our primary goal was to identify the specific bus that the student got onto where that bus went. We were able to use probably 30 different cameras that the university had to track every step that this bus took. And there were cameras that were super high definition, super clear, and some where it was just kind of blurry blobs. But we were able to determine where the student was sitting on the bus. So we looked at all the cameras at each of the bus stops to determine whether or not the student, whether it was a clear picture or essentially just a dark blob, was in that seat on the bus. We ultimately, working together, were able to determine the stop where the student was not on the bus. So we determined she got off uh, at the previous stop that did not have a camera. We pulled the security camera footage for all of the buildings in the immediately in the immediate area, quickly identified the building that she went into. We were able to check the visitor logs to see what room she was signed into and immediately dispatch officers out to that location. Turns out, thankfully, the student was completely unharmed. Her phone had died. She didn't have a charger. But using that technology, we were able to quickly locate this student and ensure that she was safe in just an insanely quick amount of time. Whereas if we didn't have that tool, there's no telling how long it would have taken for law enforcement to find her without the CCTV system. Nice. So it wasn't even a kidnapping or abduction no scenario absolutely it was just that her phone yeah. died okay yeah so All her right. phone died and she was missing for let's say 15 hours at this point and her friends hadn't heard from her it's starting to get dark out the next night they were incredibly worried about her but yeah thankfully we were able to use that technology to locate her very quickly nice all right i like your stories you got some good stories here <laughs> You didn't do the dishes? Well, no, I was busy doing other chores. But my completed chores is up five in the last seven days. Yeah, but you're still down 13 over the last 28 days. Well, I see your shopping purchases is up 20% this month. 
my spending is still down year to date. In fact, my black shoe purchases are half of what they were this time last year. Well, thank goodness last year wasn't a normal year. Plus, I bought you new underwear, so your clothes purchases is up 40% this month compared to last month. Oh, wait. There were no clothes purchases the previous month, Miss Perfect. I didn't know you had the ability to divide by zero. You should be happy. Your temperature-led policing program has worked great in this house. I have not touched your precious thermostat in the last six months. Millions of homes in the U.S. are impacted by people wanting to be comfortable in their homes. Temperature-led policing, control the temperature, control the cost. Hey, this is Freddie Croft, Lieutenant with HPD. My public service announcement is to encourage people to get a key model of skill acquisition. Learn a broad set of skills across many different things, and then find one that interests you and dive deep into that. Learn and become a subject matter expert in it. Doing that will allow you to be extremely successful in your career. Let's get back to NYPD then, because yeah. you do have another interesting story that you were telling me that I, I want for you to tell the audience. It's about a term that I just would have never known the name of, and certainly is a funny, interesting story. Yeah. So one of the more, I guess, comical cases that I've had the ability to work on, myself and my analyst supervisor at the time, we were reviewing complaints in mass, and we were just kind of reading the narratives, looking for similarities for an unrelated project. And uh, we both came across the term flushometer. And we were like, what is this? And we kind of, we saw it, we each saw it a few times. So I we went to each other and we're like, what is this? And essentially it's the, usually the automated toilet flushing device you see at any commercial establishment, whether it's at a urinal or a toilet, the device, when you stand up, when you're done and you leave, it automatically flushes a toilet. So these devices apparently are worth anywhere from like three to $500. Myself and my supervisor at the time, we had discovered that someone or people were stealing these flushometers from around the city. So we kind of identified this as an issue. We reached out to the analysts in the other precincts where we had noticed it. And we asked, um, kind of put together anything you can on these flushometers or plumbing equipment being stolen from fast food restaurants. And we ended up determining that there was an individual who owned his own plumbing company so he had some knowledge in the, in the <laughs> trade. He was going to these fast food restaurants, mostly uh, Wendy's, Starbucks, McDonald's, Burger King. He would go in, lock the bathroom door, use some wrenches or <laughs> pipe cutting tools and just steal the flushometers and leave, leaving water all over the floor. Complete mess. Thankfully, myself and the other analysts were also able to determine that this individual was swapping his license plate to try to fly under the radar in between incidents. And we found that there were some restaurants that he would hit multiple times. So it was incredible. This guy had hit about 40 different restaurants around the city. There were some days where he would hit three or four locations. He just kind of went, went around the city stealing these flushometers. But myself and the other analysts were able to use a lot of the tools that we had to really put together a full timeline of the incident, pull video evidence, use LPR technology, license plate readers to determine where his vehicle with both license plates was traveling. And we even found that his vehicle had a traffic summons at one point while he was inside stealing the flushometers. So we were able to put his vehicle at the scene, put him at the scene, use the security camera footage from each of the establishments and just kind of piece all of it together. And it's definitely probably one of the funnier crime patterns I have been able to work on. You know, the only thing that would make that story better is if he actually tried to talk the manager into hiring him to fix the, the <laughs> <Yeah>. toilets. <laughs> That's the thing. If his company ended up getting hired and then he shows up with the same vehicle and the same clothes with selling their flushometers back to them. <laughs> That is that is good stuff there. Flush ometer. Yeah. So yeah, I, I had no idea what that thing was called, and now I do. So me either. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on then. Last year, last spring, of course, we had COVID, the pandemic, and uh, society shut down, and you got to be a part of a COVID task force as an analyst. What was your role and uh, what was your experience with this? Yeah, so as you probably remember, and many people do, uh, New York City got hit 
pretty hard with COVID pretty early on. And like the rest of the country and the rest of the world, we immediately saw a shortage in PPE. So we had a huge challenge to try to figure out how much PPE or personal protective equipment that the city had. So the mayor established a PPE task force, essentially. So every day, the unit that I was a part of, we were responsible for pulling together information from federal, state, and local sources to determine how much personal protective equipment, whether it be masks, coveralls for the hospitals, different medical equipment that we had available and had coming into the city every day. So we had to track essentially the inventory flow. There were days when we would have five, six, seven, 10 million units of PPE coming into the city. And we had to develop daily reports for the task force and for the mayor's office to show exactly how much of these medical supplies were going into the city, which warehouses and locations were receiving the equipment, which hospitals were then getting the equipment shipped out to them. And other units in the task force were responsible for determining which hospitals had shortages or which agencies had shortages in equipment and who needed that equipment to help identify and try and kind of streamline the whole supply chain of medical equipment. I ended up working 45 days straight. Every morning, I woke up at 6.30 in the morning to do work for a different internal NYPD COVID task force I was a part of, then go do my normal job as a crime analyst for the unit I was assigned to. And then at night, I did the task force work. So we would get all of these reports in from other city agencies or uh, federal agencies on the PPE deliveries that were coming in. And myself and a police officer that I worked with at the time, we actually used Excel, developed <laughs> some automated reports that were pretty digestible for the executives and for the mayor's office. And we were able to put all of this information into less than a 10-page packet summarizing the flow of millions and millions of pieces of PPE and medical equipment. And it was a huge part of uh, streamlining this flow of information for the mayor's office to really have a better understanding of what the city was dealing with and what we had the capability to handle and what we needed. It was an incredible experience. So are you working from home at this point on this project or are you still coming into the office at this time? So I was uh, working from home. Like I said, I kind of had three jobs at the time. I was working for an NYPD COVID task force, doing my typical analyst work and then doing this. But at, at night, it would be, I, I was working from home, but myself and the police officer I worked with to generate these reports, it was just constantly on the phone, double checking with each other, making sure that everything that we had was correct and that the reports were complete and all information from all these other random agencies that we were getting was making it into the daily reports. So we were in constant communication, but yeah, thankfully I was working from home. Very good. All right. Then let's talk about you becoming a member of the Crime Gun Intelligence Center. And uh, we talked a little bit before the recording, Crime Gun just doesn't sound right, but that's the name of it. So let's uh, start there of what that is, and then we'll get into your role. Yes. So even for me, the first time I heard the name, I was a little confused, but essentially the Crime Gun Intelligence Centers, they focus on guns that were used in crimes hence the term crime gun. So the center is designed to uh, develop intelligence on these crime guns. So specifically firearms, when they're purchased, purchaser has to fill out information about them. They have to answer specific questions in order to be legally cleared to purchase the gun. And then when a gun is recovered in a crime, then that information can be found. There are no national databases of gun owners so in order to figure out who purchased a gun, it is a long manual process to figure out the origin of the gun. So when a gun is recovered, someone has to essentially get all the information from a gun, like the serial number, make, model, importer. They enter that information into an online system that then goes to the ATF's National Tracing Center, where someone picks up the phone and calls, let's say, Glock and says, hi, um, this gun was recovered in a crime in New York City. I need to know who this gun was sold to. And then they'll essentially say, this gun was sold to this wholesaler or this gun dealer. And then the process continues where the tracing center would then contact the wholesaler or gun dealer and say, this gun was recovered in a crime. Here's the serial number. Here's all the information. Can you tell us where it went next? 
And then they'll say who it was sold to next, or if it was an individual that it was sold to at a gun store, then you can essentially identify who purchased the firearm. So once you, that's essentially the firearm tracing process. So a big piece of crime gun intelligence is figuring out who purchased the gun and whether or not that gun was potentially trafficked. So a large portion of what we do is reviewing trace data for potential trafficking. And then another piece of what is done by crime gun intelligence centers is when a gun is recovered, they do ballistic testing to figure out if this gun was used in any other shootings. And that's done through the NIBIN system or National Integrated Ballistic Information Network. So they can look essentially in a nationwide database to see if the shell casings fired from this recovered firearm or recovered from a scene are linked to any other shootings. So I talked before about the guy stealing flushometers. That was a part of a crime pattern. A NIBIN and ballistics essentially tell us about shooting patterns. So a large portion of the work that we do focuses on tracing and ballistics and then generating leads for potential trafficking. So what is the definition of trafficking? <laughs> most people, most gun purchasers buy a gun for their own use. But mm -hmm. when someone purchases a gun, not for themselves, they've essentially lied on a federal form and committed a crime. There are people that purchase guns for criminals to be used in violence. Most of what we're seeing in New York is gang violence. A lot of the guns being recovered here are being recovered from gang members. And we can look at specific indicators to see if a firearm recovered from someone was potentially trafficked. And if it was, you can kind of dig deeper and do investigations and you'll, you'll read news articles. We had one recently in New York where there was an undercover investigation where the NYPD ended up purchasing 80 plus firearms from one individual. So that individual was acquiring the firearms in another state, typically down south is where the guns come from, from source states. And then they bring them up to the city and sell them. So this person is a trafficker trafficking the firearms and they sell them. Then thankfully they're being sold to undercover cops, never made it onto the streets. But the NYPD just released statistics that there were, I believe, nearly 4,000 firearms recovered from the streets of New York from mostly violent individuals so far this year. That's an incredible amount of firearms being taken off the street. And that's happening year after year after year. And we're starting to see that these guns are coming from traffickers. You can identify when you trace a firearm, you can identify what's called the time to crime, which is the time from when a gun is purchased to when it is recovered in a crime. This leads us to your analyst badge story. And so, and you're living your analyst badge story at the moment. This is your career defining case or project. What are you currently working on? So for the past several months, I've been working as a lead on a project with my team to develop a firearm trafficking identification and intelligence system that essentially allows analysts and investigators working with our team and working with the ATF and NYPD to help identify firearm trafficking in a more efficient process than before. We've been developing a geospatial intelligence system named GunTrack that has essentially allowed for all of this previously siloed information from different agencies to be brought together in one platform where we layer intelligence all in one platform and someone with very little experience can go in and with a few clicks of a mouse identify potential firearm traffickers and identify trafficking leads. So before, as we discussed, an analyst or an investigator, you're searching all of these different systems to try to piece together information about one individual and try to see what you can find. What I wanted to do with this system and what we did with the support of my team was create a firearm trafficking system that brings together information from multiple different sources and agencies and databases all into one platform. So you can immediately identify potentially trafficked firearms based on indicators that are pretty common in firearm trafficking. So it's been a incredible experience building this. We've presented it to leadership at the Department of Justice, leadership in the state of New York, in the city of New York, to agencies across the country. And it's been, I guess, the defining moment of my career so far. I have been 
pushing since day one as an analyst. And even before I knew I wanted to be an analyst for innovation. And this is, I guess, the most innovative thing that I have done so far was building this firearm trafficking identification system. I have only been doing this for less than a year working with firearm trafficking, but I work with agents and analysts that have been doing firearm trafficking investigations for 30 plus years. And they will all say in every presentation we're in or any meeting we're in, this is an absolute game changer for them. And myself, um, when I first got here and we would do investigations into potential trafficking leads, we would be looking at all of these different databases and it would take a very long time for us to gather all the information we need for one potential lead. Whereas now we essentially automated that entire process. So now, like I said, with a few mouse clicks, you know whether or not this firearm meets all of the indicators that we would normally have to manually search through different databases to find whether or not this is potentially trafficked. And now immediately right off the bat, you know, boom, this is a lead that we should look into further. Obviously, there's no guarantee that it is a trafficked firearm, but it it provides leads for investigators and it's incredible. So are you getting access to the back end of the databases to all these different sources um what i can say is that it pulls together data from multiple different agencies in uh, an automated fashion right and so this will because i was gonna ask you about this because the, the idea that you would have to contact glock or contact the manufacturer to find out more information about the buyer of the gun this will help alleviate some of that legwork have it at your disposal instead of having to reach out to so many different sources yeah so the firearm tracing process well unfortunately still remains the same and somewhat manual but once Mm -hmm. the tracing process is completed and the results of the trace are back that's where the system that i helped develop comes into play where we take all of the trace data and enhance that with other data from different databases and pull everything together into one system. So unfortunately, it doesn't yet help the manual arduous process of tracing a firearm, but it takes all of that information and brings it all together in one place once the tracing process is completed. This is like a little another customized database in NYPD. Yeah, so not only NYPD, but it's a a platform that brings together information from both NYPD and the ATF. Excellent. And so what stage is this project in? So it's actually, I started it back in April, kind of started testing it. As I mentioned, I'm big on innovation. When I got to the Crime Gun Intelligence Center, I kind of saw a few gaps that I thought could be filled with different technologies that we had. So I started building this system back in April. I worked with the detectives and analysts and agents that I work with now to kind of really build it up to what it is now. But for the last eh, five months, it's been fully operational. We make little tweaks here and there, but it it is actively being used to generate firearm trafficking leads. All right. Now, do you have dedicated IT staff? On this project, or are you doing a lot of the script writing and legwork that way? Yeah, so pretty much all of the technical work and IT stuff that has gone into this has been managed by me. There's some people that I can reach out to from other units for support, but the vast majority of what's been done was pretty much built by me, managed by me, updated by me, obviously with feedback from the rest of the team and their input as well. But yeah, I've been kind of like the main technical person behind all of it is it like a sharepoint system that you would talk about or how would you describe it to somebody that isn't aware of what your system is the system is essentially like an online dashboard using arcgis so it's a mapping based dashboard platform and then when you apply that geospatial aspect to the information, we were able to take essentially what used to be just spreadsheets and Word documents and PDFs and all these random documents that we would look at separately. And then going in and querying different systems, we kind of took all of that, put it all together in one place, mapped everything out. So you can identify geospatial trends in gun trafficking as well as the gun recovered at this specific intersection or from this specific person was potentially trafficked. So the biggest piece behind all of this is the the geospatial aspect. 
and then all of the layered intelligence that goes into that. I can send you a, um, for your own knowledge, there was a Fox News actually came. This is the only reason I can talk about it. <laughs> Fox <laughs> okay. News came to my office and we did a presentation. I'll dig and try to find that clip and I'll email it to you yeah. so you can get a better idea. Yeah, and we'll put that in the show notes. I think okay. it only ends up as like a few second clip with no real <laughs> background information, but it was presented to the nation essentially. <laughs> oh, I, I gotcha. <laughs> my last question for NYPD, when most people think of NYPD, it's if not the most popular police department in the world, one of the most famous police departments. And you just think of all the technology, think of all the innovation that you've experienced. Is there any practice or procedure that you're just really surprised has not been replaced yet? Like it's decades old. And I'll give you a second to think about that. When I was at Cincinnati Police Department, they've done a ton of stuff with camera work and taser and a lot of interesting technology. And yet we were still keeping timesheets in this big book. Like it wasn't mm -hmm. even online. It was just like this, the administrative assistant had to use the end of a pencil eraser to mark who was here and who wasn't here on a particular day. And it's like this big wow. book of knowledge that comes into it. And I was just like, I cannot believe that's how we're keeping time. <laughs> like, yes. and, you know, so, so I was interested. <laughs> is there anything like that when you're like, oh my gosh, of all the crazy technology that we have, we're still archaic in doing it this yes. way. So one thing that still fascinates me is that if you go make a police report to NYPD, an officer has a huge report that they fill out completely by hand and then they pass it off to someone who's been hired to type that into the computer oh. and as you know <laughs> that alone can allow for so many errors to occur oh, and man. especially when you have several thousand police officers all with different handwriting some more legible than others and someone oh. else is reading that to then type it into a computer it's mind-boggling to me that we take hundreds of thousands of reports every year handwritten and then somebody else types it into a computer oh i had no idea you had a data entry staff oh my yep. goodness there are people that are hired specifically just to type in police reports oh wow it's interesting because when i worked in syracuse before i got to the university's police department they had a similar thing and then they put laptops and tablets in all the police cars and built in time for the officers that when they were taking a report that they could just immediately enter it into the computer right then and there on scene. And to me, I mean, there's the volume here is so high and it would definitely take some time to modernize that entire process. But I mean, NYPD continues to make huge advancements and uh, modernize so many processes. So I'm sure it's something that's going to come at some point, but yeah. It's interesting because every time the district attorney's office would need information on a police report, we would have to go and dig through the filing cabinet to find the report. And sometimes <laughs> if a case has been held up for a while, you have to go down to the basement in the storage room to find a specific report from a specific day <laughs> and dig that up and then make sure that everything on there matches everything in the typed report. And then you have to scan the report and send it to them. <laughs> It would be so much easier <laughs> if everything was on the computer. <laughs> yeah. Well, nowadays with the speech to text technology, exactly. I can't believe it wouldn't be the you just record the conversation and then obtain all the data that way. But I'm sure that causes its own set of headaches too, but that's probably where we're headed. So yeah, hopefully. Stuff. I like that <laughs> answer, man. I had no idea. I wasn't sure about that question, but that's a, that's a good, interesting answer. Yeah, no, that was a good one. All right. We're going to finish up this interview with a call-in segment. This is a favorite first jobs. This is where we ask the callers what their favorite first jobs are. And it's this is something that I got from Steve Gottlieb. He was a radio DJ when he was in high school. And he actually <laughs> produced a show on Sunday mornings. So this uh, kind of led me to ask analysts of what their uh, favorite first jobs is. I certainly get some really interesting answers. So do you have a favorite first job? <laughs> yeah, so actually what uh, initially sparked my interest in environmental science way before all of this. In high school, I worked for an environmental organization that kind of went door to door asking people for 
financial contributions, sometimes support, sometimes signatures for certain bills for the New York State Legislature. And I had spent a few summers working for the organization where I would go to random neighborhoods. I had no idea where I was and just go and knock door to door asking people for money. I got all sorts of crazy responses. Um, <laughs> one person pulled a gun on me. Um, it, it was quite the experience to be like 15 or 16 doing, but uh, I've come a long way since then. <laughs> wow. Nice. All right. Yeah. So first on the line is Jeff. Jeff, what's one of your favorite first jobs? Uh, in my early 20s, I managed a youth hostel in York, England for some time. And it was an am- amazing experience working in a different country uh, and meeting people from all over the world. And it was one of the first times that I really kind of got to experience uh, a world beyond just my my little one that I had grown up in. Yeah, I'm always fascinated about people in their teenage years or even in college going overseas and working and just getting that whole experience that way, especially if you're from a small town in, in America to eventually make your way overseas and just experience the rest of the world. It's just an awesome opportunity. Are you still there? Yes, I am. Oh, okay. All right. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. I know. No, this, is a, this is a talk show, so I kind of need you to talk. So. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yes, it is definitely very interesting. After I finished college, I went uh, backpacking through Europe, and it was an incredible experience. Nice. Man, yeah. we didn't even get a chance to talk about that. That was a yeah. whole segment <laughs> in, in itself. Man, that yeah. is fantastic. I had a friend that did that. He, was, he actually was doing it by himself. And we oh, were wow. just we were just joking about him that he was going to get mauled by a bear, <laughs> like, <laughs> that we would never see him again or anything else. And he was perfectly comfortable just going over to a different country and backpacking by himself. <laughs> and that yeah. is something. I mean, I might do that, but I'm definitely having a guide and having a bunch of people with me and and everything else if that's what I'm doing. Oh yeah, of course. I would not go anywhere where I needed to worry about getting mauled by a bear. <laughs> I went to. I think it was six or seven different countries, multiple different cities. I, I went with my girlfriend at the time, but it, it was an incredible experience. Got to visit friends, go to all different countries, islands, have all sorts of different food. Although I will say a few years ago, I, I was taking a trip to visit family in Australia and I did a solo trip to Hong Kong one night. I had a 15-hour layover, and I got there at midnight, and I was like, this is probably the only time I'll be in Hong Kong anytime soon. I need to go explore the city. So I dropped off my bags in the hotel, took a shower, went out and explored the city completely alone, thankfully, before everything that has happened in Hong Kong now. But it, yeah. it was just, that was the one time where I really had no bearings at all in the country. I just ordered an Uber to the... Uh, there's a popular student area, a uh, big social scene with a lot of bars at night. So I uh, I went out there one night and just kind of explored, had a great time. And uh, that was my only solo experience, though. Nice, nice. Now, I wonder how many cameras you got on that night. I got, I got <laughs> Probably believe, hundreds I got a, of thousands. <laughs> yes, I got to believe they have a ton. All right. Next on the line is Annie. Annie, what's one of your favorite first jobs? My favorite first job, believe it or not, is when I was at FAMU and I got to be the Secretary of State in Student Government. And what that job was responsible for was meeting the different dignitaries that came on campus, um, meeting the different other SGA folks, planning activities with, with for students. And that's how I really got into the big push for always wanting to plan activities or plan functions that could, you know, bring people together and have people socializing. So my very first job on FAMU's campus, and I I was paid through work study to be the uh, Secretary of State, and I had a blast doing it because I met a lot of interesting students from other universities, met a lot of different people who would come on campus either speak for our convocations, workshops, seminars, that kind of thing. I really do appreciate that because I think that gave me a good foundation in um, wanting to meet people and just trying to trying to fill people's minds out a little bit on what makes society tick socially. 
Yeah, again, in college, rubbing elbows with a bunch of either uh, local or city state government workers. And for, she said FAMU there, that's Florida A&M uh, okay. University that she's referring to. And that's in Tallahassee. So that's right in the capital of Florida. And that's dealing with all sorts of dignitaries. What a great opportunity. You know, I have to say I'm a little jealous of that because current president is also a Syracuse University alum. And while I was at Syracuse University, he came to visit for an event. And if I was in a similar position and got to meet him, it would have been incredible. I had to look on from outside as his limo drove by after the fact, but... (laughs) Definitely would have been a great experience. Nice. All right. Next on the line is Giovanni. Giovanni, what's one of your favorite first jobs? Hey, I was a DJ. And, uh, you know, it started uh, with some friends playing some music back in the uh, 90s. And then we started to, you know, doing parties, doing birthday parties, uh, providing music for birthday parties, starting to rent equipment, starting to rent uh, sound equipment, lights. And then it, you know, it, it grew and my highlight was being a DJ in one of those clubs in, in the summer. And for three months, practically, I slept very little because not just I was the responsible for the discotheque in the evening, but also responsible for all the music announcement early in the morning. So with very little sleep, I remember those great days. Yeah. That's a great summer job as well. Man, I, my, my summer jobs were lame. I wasn't uh, <laughs> doing DJing at a club at all hours of the day and night. But sounds like that really took off too faster than what he had anticipated. <laughs> Absolutely. I, that sounds fun. It's definitely a lot more uh, exciting and exhilarating than my summer jobs as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but definitely would have enjoyed doing something like that. All right. Next on the line is Brittany. Brittany, what's one of your favorite first jobs? My favorite first job was a cub. I was a covert underage buyer. I got to go in and try to buy alcohol. It was awesome. I had to actually use my real information, but to see which places sold and which places didn't. Wow. How old were you? 15. I started at 15. Man. Yeah. So I, I always looked a lot older when I was younger. Everybody thought I was way older. So I would probably never pass for somebody that was underage, but what an incredible experience to go into a bar at 15 and try to get served. (laughs) It's uh, that's pretty funny. Actually, one of my coworkers that I share a cubicle with now, uh, she did the same thing when she was an intern for a police department in Long Island. It sounded like quite a fun experience. Yeah. I mean, without having the, don't have to worry about getting busted or losing your license. Just go in there, see if you can get served. So exactly. And then you get some free beer if you do get served. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that part's frowned on, but yeah, that's that's another way cooler job than than what I had. So, all right. Last, but certainly not least, Liam, what's one of your favorite first jobs? My favorite first job was that around the age of 15 or so, I was an umpire for the local Little League, umpiring like eight to nine-year-old boys pony league is what they called it, games. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I loved it, but I was not what most parents expected. I'm I'm very little (laughs) girl, I'm very short. And there were a lot of angry parents who got way too into these eight to (laughs) nine-year-old Little League games who would just yell angrily from the stands at every little thing. And looking back, it's pretty funny. But I really, really enjoyed that job. Yeah, I mean, if you want to get an understanding of how crazy Little League or youth sports can get, just open up the state law book wherever you are. And there's going to be chapters on specific crimes against referees because parents losing their minds assaulting or berating referees and there's all kinds of laws that you can break specifically against referees yeah that's quite ridiculous especially considering it's little league and children's sports that are not really that serious but there's parents willing to beat people up and go to jail over that it's quite wild the society we live in yeah and it's i lead it back to some of these big tournaments right i knew a guy he would spend his whole entire saturday at the soccer field and his whole entire sunday afternoon at the baseball field wow and that was his weekend for about three months in the fall wow 
you're already working 40 hours a week and then you're spending what 16 hours of your weekend there so you can imagine when you're spending all that time there not to justify it but the fact that you're putting in that much time you have certain expectations and you're just losing your mind when stuff doesn't go your way yeah anyway so all right well our last segment to the show is words to the world and this is where i give the guests the last word alex you can promote any idea that you wish what are your words to the world i guess my uh words to the world would be for any uh, aspiring analysts or current analysts I've had so many people reach out to me on LinkedIn or reach out to me through other means, contacting me, trying to figure out how to become an analyst at NYPD. There is absolutely nothing wrong with working for a tiny police department or a smaller agency or midsize agency. NYPD is an incredible place to work, but working at smaller agencies is just as good. And in my own experience, from what I've heard from so many other analysts, Working at a smaller agency will also afford you more opportunities. I know many analysts who were able to participate in different tactical operations at smaller agencies. For myself, one of the big things was getting out of the office at NYPD. Very rarely get out of the office. When I worked for Syracuse University, got out of the office all the time. I kind of got to get hands-on with the investigative process, uh, go to different crime scenes, and really get to understand what the officers and investigators that you're supporting are really dealing with every day. Well, very good. Well, I leave every guest with you. You've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Alex. Thank you so much, and you be safe. Absolutely, you too. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking. <laughs>